Hello and welcome to my show, Shuvra Deb with you, with me, your host, Shuvra Deb. In this show, I will be discussing mental health with the aim of raising mental health awareness in our community and in society as a whole. The genesis of the show is my own pivotal life-changing experience of being in a Category 5 hurricane back in 2017. That experience led me to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. I am hosting this show in order to let you know that you are not alone if something life-changing has happened to you from which you are struggling to heal. Shuvra Deb With You focuses on a range of topics relevant to mental health and to raising awareness of issues surrounding mental health. Hello everyone and welcome back to Shuvra Deb with you, where I help you to prioritize and look after your own mental health and that of those you love and care about. As you'll know, and for those of you tuning in for the first time, my show is about raising awareness around the topic of mental health. Whilst my show is about that, I do want to make it clear at the very outset that I'm not a mental health professional and I'm not a doctor. If you do need to seek professional help, then I wholeheartedly encourage you to do so. And we have a good number of options here in the Cayman Islands where you can reach out to for support. And I will run through those resources at the end of this show. Last week, my show was called Easter Special, Time to Hit Reset. I took the opportunity of it being the lead up to Easter to discuss some of the mental health issues that we can experience around the time of holidays, be that Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving or something else relevant to your culture and your holiday schedule. I looked at how the holidays can be a time when we may feel anxious due to the pressures of feeling that we have to spend time with family or or friends and where we may feel the pressure to have to look like we're having fun because it seems to us that everybody else around us is having fun. I suggested some of the ways in which we may wish to deal with these pressures, such as setting boundaries with ourselves, our family and friends, as well as picking up the phone to your local mental health helpline if you need someone to talk to. I also spoke about how Easter is almost synonymous with it being a time of resurrection, renewal and hope, not just because of religious connotations, but because it's springtime in the Northern Hemisphere, which is a time for planting new seeds. In that episode last week, I spoke about the law of attraction and how by following Jack Canfield's seven laws of attraction, we can start to live a more fulfilled and intentional life where we make the choices about what we focus our time and energy on. I really recommend you go check out that show as the tools I give you there will help you meet your goals. For those of you listening live on the radio, head on over to my podcast to listen to last week's show and any of my previous shows. You can find me, Shuvra Deb, with you on Spotify, Apple, Google and other platforms on demand and for free. In that episode, I then took you through an interactive exercise on how you can put Canfield's Law of Attraction into practice. I said that firstly, we identify our goal. Secondly, we identify what may be blocking us from reaching our goal. And thirdly, we devise and execute a plan of action to attain our goal. And I talked through a plan that we've compiled together. For those of you who did that with me, I hope you found your weekly 15-minute slots to get you going on things that are for you. I then talked about using any fears that we may have around any issues as fuel for accomplishing our goals and intentions, and I rounded off by looking at ways in which we can conquer our fears. Moving on to this week's show. It's called Celebrating Diversity, 
The Impacts of Social Exclusion on Mental Health. Today I will be looking at various topics to do with mental health, social exclusion and why diversity should be celebrated. I am not, however, talking about censorship. Some of you will no doubt be aware that recently some countries censored certain literary texts by authors including Agatha Christie, Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming. The purpose behind this, it seems, was to eliminate language from the old world order, language which was racist, sexist and generally offensive and inappropriate by the generally accepted standards of today. I'm not going to be talking about diversity in this context because my views don't accord with those of the decision makers on censorship for various far-reaching reasons and for my listeners who are interested in my concerns about the wider implications of this kind of censorship, I refer you to George Orwell's novella Animal Farm. It's a short book, an easy read, and in my view a must-read for any citizen of the world. The more direct reason I disagree with banding diversity into censorship is that it removes the ability for the reader of these kinds of texts to think critically about them. It removes from the record the ways in which our species has developed. If anything, by covering over language now deemed to be inappropriate, and for good reason deemed to be inappropriate, I'm a brown woman and I look around 10 years younger than I actually am, so I get the struggle to be taken seriously. I get the struggle that some of us face and have faced in day-to-day life due to discrimination. But by covering over what once was, we deny those coming ahead of us the opportunity to see just why it is so critical that language and attitudes are now more inclusive, that attitudes are now less discriminatory. By not having sight of the before, the during and the after of how language and attitudes have developed and changed over time, and will no doubt continue to develop and change, we lose sight of why the changes that have been made have had to be made. And not only that, but as an English graduate, I'm a purist. The text as written by the author should remain untouched. Criticise it by all means, that's a good thing, but don't rewrite it. What I'm going to talk to you about today is why social inclusion and diversity matter from a mental health perspective. In order to understand social inclusion and diversity, we need first to know what social exclusion is. So what exactly is social exclusion? The term refers to the deliberate or unintentional ways in which groups of individuals are denied access to resources, opportunities and privileges that may be available to others in society, usually the majority group. And that group becomes the majority either because of numbers or because of certain traits that society has decided should be attributed to the majority or because of monetary wealth. Quite often, the groups that fall prey to social exclusion are people belonging to what we call minority groups, whether that be because of race, age, gender, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation or something else. The ways that minority group members can be treated by the majority can lead to feelings in those minority individuals of feeling small, worthless, belittled, inferior even. And this seeps into the mental health effects on people who are placed in the group known as minority. I have discussed on previous shows that around 20% of American people experience a mental, mental illness in any given year. And those statistics are borne out across the board. For example, in the UK, according to MIND, which is one of the leading mental health charities over there, approximately one in four people, that's 25% of people, will experience a mental health problem each year. Go to Australia, and according to the Australian government, around 20% of those aged 16 to 85 have experienced a mental health problem within the last 12 months. 
Now, those are the general stats. In terms of minority groups' experience with mental health issues, BetterHelp.com tells us that minority groups can face additional challenges that can impact mental health and mental health treatment. Minorities can face mental health challenges that are unique to them, while also experiencing additional barriers to care and limited resources for such care. A person can belong to a minority group based on a variety of identity markers. These could include race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so on. BetterHelp sets out some statistics on minority mental health. Amongst these are that only one in three black adults who need mental health care receive it. Around 35% of Hispanic adults with mental illnesses receive treatment each year, compared with a US average of about 46%. Only 25% of Asian adults with a mental illness receive the treatment they need. And the toll of social exclusion can be severe. Dr. Gabor Mate, a leading researcher and physician in trauma and trauma treatment, in his recently published book, The Myth of Normal, talks about social exclusion and race in chapter 22. He has named that chapter the assaulted sense of self, how race and class get under the skin. Talking about the tolls of social exclusion from the perspective of race, Dr. Maté states that being othered and separated on the grounds of race can have the effect of inducing self-rejection in the person to whom those discriminatory attitudes are expressed. Dr. Maté says in his book, Self-rejection has powerful physiological dimensions that pertain to every aspect of well-being. From an early age, it is one of racism's sharpest and most intimate harms. Dr. Maté continues, Canadian physician Dr. Clyde Hertzman minted the concept of biological embedding, by which he meant that our social environments and experiences, in his words, get under the skin early in life, shaping our biology and development. Dr. Maté describes the experience of his friend, an African-Canadian-British lady called Valerie Mason-John. Mason-John grew up in an orphanage in Barkingside, Essex, which is precisely where I am from, immediately making me feel a pull towards her and her experiences. Mason-John has a really inspiring TEDx talk on her childhood, which I highly recommend you watch and listen to, the YouTube link to which is in my show notes for the podcast. In that talk... Mason John describes how at the tender ages of 12, 13 and 18, she tried to take her own life. She says, I believed all the negative things that people said about me. I had to stop bullying myself with the thoughts in my head that told me I was useless, no good, that I was a failure, worthless. And if that wasn't enough, I continued to bully myself with the chronic disease of anorexia, bulimia nervosa. Mason John says she is one of the lucky ones because she has survived to tell the tale, as opposed to the large numbers of children who take their own lives due to being bullied by their parents, teachers or peers, or the adults who take their own lives due to being bullied at home or at work. She says about this, these are inconceivable deaths. Mason John uses the words stinking thinking to describe the ways in which we can bully ourselves. She says... Our stinking thinking can cause our own or another person's depression, mental illness, or at worst, death. Mason John got tired of being a victim, tired of other people's narratives, negative things that adults told her when she was a child. She says, stop believing in this negative chatter that makes your life a living hell. Interestingly, she concludes, whenever we bully ourselves, we will bully everybody around us, 
projecting all the things we don't like about ourselves onto others. Dr. Mate reflects this and says, Psychologically, on the individual level, the othering racism entails is an antidote to self-doubt. If I don't feel good about myself, at least I can feel superior to somebody and gain a sense of power and status by claiming privilege over them. But othering and social exclusion doesn't just stop at race. One of the next obvious categories to look at is gender. On that, Dr. Gabor Mate says this in The Myth of Normal. He says at chapter 23 in his book, which is entitled Society's Shock Absorbers, Why Women Have It Worse. He says, why do women suffer chronic illness of the body far more often than men? And why are they far more likely to be diagnosed with mental health conditions? I say apparent because from all that is known about the body-mind unity and our biopsychosocial nature, the answers are staring us in the face and are entirely predictable. That we don't recognize them has everything to do with our taking for granted the normal ways of things in a culture of patriarchy, which despite centuries of female resistance and progress, is ruled as often by subliminal male concerns as by overt power dynamics. Dr. Mate goes on to cite a leading US physician who stated in a 2021 Washington Post article entitled, Why Men and Women Feel Pain Differently. This physician said, women have it worse pointing out that women are at much higher risk of suffering chronic pain, migraines, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, and autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. So what is the link between these conditions and their prevalence in women? Is it coincidental, genetic perhaps, or just one of those things to which women are perhaps more susceptible than men? According to Dr. Mate, it's this. He says, in a study that followed nearly 2,000 women over 10 years, those who reported that, in conflict with their spouses, they usually or always kept their feelings to themselves, had over four times the risk of dying during the follow-up, compared with women who always showed their feelings. As at home, so on the job. Another study showed that for women with non-supportive bosses, the squashing of anger, a natural adaptation to an environment in which to self-express, would be to risk the loss of employment, increased the risk of heart disease. And it's not just Dr. Mate who talks about the danger of suppressing emotions. Karen Lawson at the University of Minnesota agrees. She says in an article that fearful or negative emotions can zap mental energy, negatively affect the body and lead to health problems. Including health problems such as hypertension, which is high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, heart disease and issues to do with digestion. So how do we stop othering? How do we stop ourselves from needing to other another in the first place? One of the steps that we can all take as individuals is to stop ourselves from being the discriminator. In order for people to be discriminated against, there have to be people out there doing the discriminating. And I do not intend to offend you here, not at all. I think to an extent, we can all be guilty, including me. We can all be guilty of, for example, unconscious bias, which is also a form of discrimination. There are some extremely valid training programs programs out there to help us with unconscious bias. For example, I've seen workplaces hold sessions where workers are trained on cultural competence or religious sensitivity. But more than that, something we can all do without even having to leave our homes to defeat our unconscious biases is to believe in ourselves. Let me explain. When we discriminate, we see another as the other. Our minds are doing that because we feel threatened. 
we feel threatened either because that other person looks different from us or they sound different to us or they have a different perspective from us. A lot of the time, we feel threatened by that other person because in the back of our minds, subconsciously even, we are afraid that they may take something away from us that we believe is ours. Take culture, for example. An age-old trope used in politics is putting rhetoric out, convincing people that incoming migrants will either take jobs or that the culture will be taken away somehow. And this isn't specific to any country, it's something that happens across the world. Now, if you're someone to whom this rhetoric is being aimed, but you're someone who has so much belief in yourself that you know it doesn't matter what goes on around you, you'll still have your job, your home, your culture, whatever. If your self-belief is so unshakable, then it follows that nothing can come along to trample on it, not even threats of the other. By having that self-belief, by knowing that we are going to be okay, that there is enough to go around, that what we already hold close and valuable will not somehow be destroyed, suddenly fewer and fewer things are threatening. And by fewer and fewer things being and feeling threatening, we become capable of being more open, more receptive. Ultimately, we become capable of not having to see another person as a threat, notwithstanding any differences we may perceive them to have as compared to us. Another important aspect of self-belief and confidence is that by having self-belief, we stop bullying ourselves. You'll recall that just now I quoted Mason John from her TEDx talk where she says, whenever we bully ourselves, we bully everybody around us, projecting all the things we don't like about ourselves onto others. You'll also recall that I said that Dr. Mate says this of bullying ourselves. Psychologically, on the individual level, the othering that racism entails is an antidote to self-doubt. If I don't feel good about myself, at least I can feel superior to somebody else and gain a sense of power and status by claiming privilege over them. By feeling good about ourselves, by having self-belief, by being confident in ourselves, there will be fewer things we don't like about ourselves that we may be tempted to project onto others. By having confidence in ourselves, we stop fearing someone who we may deem to be the other. So how do we go about getting to a place of self-belief, confidence and feeling good about ourselves? Well, there are actually quite a few ways in which we can build self-belief and confidence and some of them are quite fun. One thing we can do for ourselves is to work out what we are good at, where our skills and our talents lie. Looking at discovering our talents, I've spoken on previous shows about the DISC test or the DISC method. The DISC method was first created by Dr. William Marston and is a tried and tested method for analysing personality to establish what kind of person we are, what characteristics we have and the intensity of those characteristics. The DISC method, which is spelt D-I-S-C, is a great way to work out where our strengths lie, which can in turn help us to focus our attentions on these, helping our confidence and self-belief to grow. You can Google DISC test or DISC method and a good number of options come up for taking the test. I did mine with Tony Robbins coaching and it was totally free. Discprofile.com and TonyRobbins.com both describe well what the letters D-I-S-C stand for and what they mean. In brief, I'll run through them. D stands for dominance and people with D personalities tend to be confident placing emphasis on results. If you're a D type of person, what this means for you is that you like to be in charge, you're driven, you get things done. D personalities make things happen. I is for influence. People with I-type personalities tend to be open and place more emphasis on relationships with people. 
If you're an I-type personality, you like to influence and persuade others with your ideas. Relationships with people will take priority for you over tasks. And whilst both relationships and tasks are important to you, you'll give natural priority to relationships with those around you before you turn to your tasks. S represents steadiness. People with S-type personalities tend to be dependable, placing emphasis on cooperation and sincerity. S-type of people prefer a slower pace, and they like to take their time to build trust and relationships with other people. Security and stability are the traits that S-type people place importance on. And C stands for conscientious. Those with C-type personalities tend to place emphasis on quality, accuracy, competence. C-type people like to ensure that products and services are performing proficiently and well. By taking the test, you'll see that most of us are a combination of all four personality types. It's rare that anybody is just one or another. It may be that we may be two, more of two, and less of the other two, for example, or some other combination. By exploring our disc type, and by looking into the quality of our characteristics and making assessments on where we find things to be most engaging, where we get a better quality of life, we start to understand ourselves a little bit better. And by understanding ourselves better, what we enjoy and what we are good at can become a focus in our lives. And this will then keep us occupied, will increase our self-esteem and our self-value. And if you'd like to have a listen to my show where I go into more details on the DISC test in the context of finding your purpose in life, then do head on over to my podcast, which is available on demand and for free on Spotify, Apple and Google. It's called Shuvra Deb With You. Have a listen to episode three, which is called Knowing Your True Purpose in Life. Another thing we can do to help build our self-belief and self-confidence is to analyze and eliminate any negative behavior we see in ourselves. MindTools.com provides a great side-by-side -side list of some of the things that we might do, which point to low self-esteem, self-belief or confidence, alongside a list of alternative modes of behavior that we can participate in instead, which will have the effect of building our self-belief. Let's look at this list. I think many of us can relate to at least some of these, so let's take a look. MindTools.com has five examples of confident behavior versus low confidence behavior. And if you want to check out the reference for the website, then do head on over to the show notes on my podcast. The first thing is doing what is authentic to you, what you believe is right, even if you think others may disagree with you or mock you. Now caveat that with not hurting someone or making fun of them, but being your authentic self, that's a trait of a confident person with self-belief. The low confidence version of this is governing and tailoring your behavior to meet other people's expectations of you or behaving in certain ways based on what other people think of you. The second thing is being willing to take risks and to go the extra mile to achieve things that you feel are better for you that take you to the next level, as opposed to staying in your comfort zone, being afraid of failure, avoiding risks and not trying. Another aspect of confidence and self-belief is admitting your mistakes taking responsibility and learning from them, as opposed to working as hard as you can to cover up a mistake in the hope that no one realizes allowing you to fix the problem before anyone sees the mistake. The fourth aspect on mindtools.com about being confident is being able to extol your own virtues. Be your own cheerleader. You don't need someone else to tell you how great you are, which you are by the way, but you don't need me sitting here telling you that or anyone else indeed telling you that. You know you're great, so acknowledge that to yourself when you achieve or accomplish something, congratulate yourself. 
This is as opposed to waiting for, wanting or needing other people to congratulate and praise you for your achievements and accomplishments. The final trait of a confidence per confident person with self-belief is being able to accept compliments graciously. Saying thank you for a compliment is a sign of self-belief and confidence, as opposed to pushing the compliment back or away and saying something like, oh, it was nothing, or even disagreeing with the person giving you the compliment. And if you're really struggling with self-belief and self-confidence, try the age-old trick of faking it until you make it. Body language and tone of voice is a great way to start. For example, when you're standing in a room, in a meeting with co-workers perhaps, stand solid, feet just short of hip distance apart, weight distributed evenly between your legs, not leaning on one leg or the other. Hold your shoulders back and your head high, as opposed to stooping or covering your face over with your hair, for example. Speaking in a solid tone of voice can help you come across as being confident too, rather than speaking in a, a soft or an in, inaudible voice, for example. And by doing those things, even when you're not feeling confident, by doing these things, you will start habit forming. You'll be training yourself to become confident. And there is science behind this. Tom Loncar writes in the British Psychological Society website about power posing. Amy Cuddy delivered one of the most successful TED Talks to date about power posing. Her and her colleagues, Carney and Yap, three researchers from Columbia and Harvard universities, posed the question in 2010, which was, can posed displays cause a person to feel more powerful? The short answer is yes. Carney and her colleagues wrote of a study they concluded in the same year that a person can, by assuming two simple one-minute poses, embody power and instantly become more powerful, which has real-world actionable implications. Amy Cuddy's now infamous talk followed in 2012, and since then, her research has faced criticism. Longcar's analysis of the studies undertaken on Posture and Cuddy's work leads him to conclude that more nuanced and large-scale studies have suggested that posture does matter when it comes to subjectively experienced feelings of power, but that it may be a question of mindful avoidance of contractive postural tendencies rather than forced expansion. In other words, it may be the case that there is more to power posing than well, power posing. And that is that when we are, for example, feeling low in confidence or when someone has spoken down to us, rather than holding an inward and contracted posture, sitting like we're small, we should stand tall or sit tall, notwithstanding how we might actually be feeling. So why is it so important to behave in confident ways to fake our confident posture until we truly feel that confidence and self-belief? Why this is so important in the context of diversity and inclusion is that by being kind to ourselves, we are kind to others. By believing in ourselves, we do not see others as threatening. By being confident, we eliminate self-doubt. And all this goes back to my earlier citation of Dr. Mate and what he says about race, which is, psychologically, on the individual level, the othering that racism entails is an antidote to self-doubt. And all this goes back to my earlier citation of Dr. Mate and what he says about race, which is, psychologically, on the individual level, the othering that racism entails is an antidote to self-doubt. If I don't feel good about myself, at least I can feel superior to someone else and gain a sense of power and status by claiming privilege over them. So we gain a sense of superiority, a sense of power, when we are feeling insecure and lacking in confidence by holding another down or judging them to be inferior 
perhaps because of how they look or what they eat or how they communicate or something else spurious. But if we have sufficient amounts of self-belief, confidence and positive views of ourselves, we will no longer need to make ourselves feel better by making someone else feel bad. Another way of building and retaining self-belief is to build ourselves up in such a way that we enable ourselves to be successful at what is important to us. It's that simple. Enable yourself to be successful at what is important to you and you will have self-belief it will come. But let's define success first, which could in fact be a whole show in itself. Perhaps the most obvious thing to say is that success means different things to different people. The Berkeley Wellbeing Institute has a great article on this called The Definition of Success, What's Your Personal Definition? Amongst the things set out in this article are definitions of success that ordinary people like you and me shared with the Institute. One person said success is accomplishing the goal of helping myself and others lead a better, happier, healthier life. Another person defined success as positive outcome after hard effort and useful experience. And another person defined the meaning of success to them as to me, success is felt and realized when our work achieves acclaim. A sense of satisfaction at the end of each day is success too. And another person said this, Success is the achievement of a desired goal, such as obtaining name and fame or wealth or a higher degree, for which a person has tried his level best. It is the positive consequence of one's achievement. The Berkeley Institute's article also cites the definition of success as proffered by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American essayist, poet and philosopher, who famously wrote the poem, What is Success? To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition. To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived here. This is to have succeeded. And success does not have to mean one thing. I think from the various definitions above, from that beautiful poem, success cannot mean one thing and one thing only. It means different things to different people, and there are different categories where success comes into play, including emotional, social, occupational, financial, and community. The Berkeley Institute suggests answering these questions to help us on our way to identifying what success means to us. You might want to jot these down on a piece of paper or in a notebook and come back to them later. The questions are, what makes you the happiest? What satisfies your core needs? What do you value? What types of accomplishments feel the most worthwhile to you? And does your idea of success have multiple parts? Bob Parsons, who is most famous for being the founder of the domain name provider GoDaddy.com, has set out 16 principles by which he lives in order to be successful and which are available on his website. If you're listening on the podcast, head to my show notes where you'll find all the links and other references I make in this show. And for those of you listening live on the radio, head on over to my podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other platforms. And you can have a listen to today's show or any shows that you may previously have missed. 
Bob Parsons has 16 principles, which I think if we follow, we will all have a lot more belief in ourselves. And it's not from going through life, having it made easy and building a company that sold for billions that Parsons has been able to come up with these principles. Parsons enlisted in the US Marine Corps and is a Vietnam War veteran. He joined the Marines and a month later returned home on a stretcher due to an explosion which had had the most impactful effects on him. He says of himself that he suffered with PTSD for 49 years, post-traumatic stress disorder for 49 years. I suffered with it for one year, so I can't even begin to imagine what it would have been like to suffer for nearly half a century. And if you want to hear more on what Parsons has to say on that, head on over to one of my favourite podcasts, On Purpose, hosted by Jay Shetty. In one of the more recent episodes, Shetty interviews Parsons, and I can promise you it's worth a listen. Going back to Parsons' 16 principles of success, and I'll let you head over to his website for the full list. But for the purposes of today, I have picked a few of my favourites for you to get started with. Never give up. Trite, perhaps. But Parsons says of this, almost nothing works the first time it's attempted. So, on the basis that most things, when done for the first time, probably don't work, or at least they won't work out exactly as we would have liked them to, the key to getting that thing to work out is to not give up. And as Parsons says, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it and you wouldn't have an opportunity. Following on from Never Give Up, another of Parsons' principles for success, and in my view self-belief, is when you're ready to quit, you're closer than you think. Parsons cites an old Chinese proverb which says, the temptation to quit will be greatest just before you are about to succeed. Rainer Zittelman, writing in Forbes magazine, says of this, To the superficial observer, the life stories of successful men and women will often appear as a steady succession of triumphs. However, this perspective frequently ignores the huge problems all high achievers have had to contend with, problems which at first sight seemed insurmountable and which might easily have caused lesser persons to stumble and fall. In fact, a lot of successful people owe their success to the problems they experienced along the way, such as the oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller, whose various business ventures established him as the richest man in history. In the sporting world, Michael Jordan was dropped from his basketball team in high school. He then went on to become the greatest basketball player of all time, according to the NBA website, and they should know. Another of Parsons' principles is to always be moving forward. He says of this, never stop investing, never stop improving, never stop doing something new. Make it your goal to be better each and every day in some small way. Small daily improvements eventually result in huge advantages. And another one is, don't take yourself too seriously. Think we can all be guilty of this at times when, for example, something doesn't quite work out the way in which we had planned and it seems like the end of the world. At the time, it is kind of the end of the world or it can feel like it. But almost in all instances, today's problems become tomorrow's stories and we are all the wiser for having gone through what we went through. Going back to the impacts of social exclusion on mental health, these can include depression, a sense of a loss of purpose, anxiety, social phobia, shame, and self-consciousness. And the impacts of each of these can be very damaging to wider society and to the overall economy. One study has shown that the total estimated cost of depression in the US back in 2000 was the following. $26.1 billion was related to direct medical costs. 
$5.4 billion was related to suicide-related mortality costs, and $51.5 billion was related to workplace costs, and that was back in the year 2000. Those costs are likely to have gone up quite a bit since then. According to one source, anxiety disorders are the most costly to the US economy, amounting to $46.6 billion. And according to an Australian source, social exclusion costs the economy there $45 billion a year. So if compassion doesn't persuade on the need for social inclusion, the economic cost of social exclusion may persuade. Taking on discrimination and eliminating it is everyone's social responsibility. How this can be done is first by recognising when discrimination and exclusion are taking place and knowing how to respond. Understanding the legislation, the laws around discrimination is a great way to become aware of what it is and how the law requires us to manage these issues. Having policies and practices in place helps too. Dealing with any complaints sensitively works as well. And there are small things that we can all do within our own communities to ensure that we are not discriminating and that we are being inclusive, such as building support networks, welcoming everybody in. Whether that's building networks amongst family members or friends or our neighbourhood. And we can volunteer in the local community in order to build that community. At its core, however, I believe that by having self-belief and self-confidence, by believing in ourselves, we have less of a need to pick on others, to undermine others, and ultimately to discriminate against them. If you find yourself on the receiving end of social exclusion, there are things that you can do about it. Something that I am a huge fan of is having what I am calling a mental health check-in buddy. And this is something which I've spoken about before on previous shows. What this is, is a friend or a relative, someone you trust and someone who trusts you, to be there for you when you're going through a tough time and vice versa you for them. Your mental health check-in buddy will be someone with whom you feel comfortable to share details of any particular situation, emotion or a combination of things that you are going through. So if you've shared with your mental health check-in buddy that you're going through some difficulties and that they're really getting you down, your buddy will be someone who maintains regular contact with you. And that could be a simple text message in the morning, just to see how you're feeling, to say, hey, how are you doing today? Quite often, waking up to that message can make the world of difference to you. By seeing that message, we are reassured that our friend is thinking of us, of our welfare, and that they care, and that we matter. Because of course we matter, and everybody matters. And sometimes it's just that we need a reminder that someone, somewhere, knows that we matter. And when your mental health check-in buddy is going through a tough time themselves, we do the same for them. Send a quick text message in the morning. Hey, just checking to see how you're doing. How are you doing today? And I have found that a question is always better than the passive version of that sentence, which would be, hey, just checking in, hope you're doing okay. For someone who is struggling with something, being asked the question motivates and provides, in my view, a deeper connection with the person sending the message, requiring a response. The only thing to watch out for, and I've said this before, with this one is to not become codependent or too dependent on each other. Where, for example, you start to rely entirely on the other person or where you start to use each other for each other's dumping ground and you end up ultimately developing unhealthy patterns and quite possibly leading to a breakdown of the relationship. With boundaries maintained, a mental health check-in buddy is a great kind of friend to have around and a great kind of friend to be to someone else. If you feel you're being discriminated against in whatever context that might be, Another thing you can do to help yourself is to keep showing up. That's right, 
Just keep showing up and being great. Keep showing up and keep doing your thing. Even if you don't see results right away of what you're trying to do, keep showing up anyway. Building resilience is another way to tackle the effects of social exclusion. Some of the steps we can take, as suggested by Everyday Health, include developing self-awareness. Understanding how we typically respond to stress and adversity is the first step toward learning adaptive strategies. Self-awareness also includes understanding our strengths and knowing our weaknesses. Another is building self-regulation skills as a way of dealing with social exclusion. Remaining focused in the face of stress and adversity is important, but not easy. Stress reduction techniques such as breathing exercises can help with regulating emotions, thoughts and behaviours. Learning coping skills. There are many coping skills that can help in dealing with stressful and challenging situations. These include journaling, reframing thoughts, exercise, spending time outdoors, socialising, improving sleep health, tapping into creative outlets and of course talking to someone, whether that's a friend or a professional. Increasing optimism. People who are more optimistic tend to feel more in control of their outcomes. To build optimism, we can focus on what we can do when faced with a challenge. We can identify positive, problem-solving steps that we can actively take. Having a gratitude practice is a great way to increase optimism. I've spoken about this before, but I think it's so important I'm going to talk about gratitude practices again. And one of the easiest ways to have a gratitude practice is to have a gratitude journal. For example, I keep a little notebook beside my bed with a pen clipped to it. That way I have no excuses when it comes to bedtime for not using the gratitude journal. I leave it open on the page that I'm going to write in, making it even easier for me to get started. And just as I'm getting into bed, I write down five things for which I'm grateful for, for from that day. And I have to be precise in what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the sun, for example, isn't precise enough. Instead, if it's the sun for which you are grateful, Think about what in particular about the sun is making you feel grateful that day. Is it that the sunrise was beautiful or perhaps the sunset had the green flash? Or is it that just that the sun warmed you? Strengthening our connections. Support systems can play a vital role in resilience. Bolstering our existing social connections and finding opportunities to build new ones is recommended. Knowing our strengths. People feel more capable and confident when they can identify and draw on their talents and strengths. And I refer you back to the DISC test or DISC method for help with identifying your talents and strengths. Another helpful solution to social exclusion is to lean on your support group. But it isn't to remain in isolation within your own support group or community away from the larger social group. By putting yourself out there for every person you meet who may discriminate against you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you will likely meet 5 to 10 people who will embrace and welcome you. So it's worth putting yourself out there. As with anything in life, there will always be rejections. Life is full of rejection. But that's not a reason or an excuse to not try, not to get out there. And if you find that you are experiencing direct social exclusion and discrimination, your body will likely be reacting to this. The experience of exclusion or discrimination will likely be a stressful event for you. I have spoken about the roles of our SNS and PNS on previous shows, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Our ability to regulate, to self-regulate our nervous system, I think is so vital, so important that I'm going to talk to you about this again. 
This self-regulation is especially important in the context of how we respond to a stressing event, such as being excluded or discriminated against. Every time we react to an event that is even mildly stressful, what is happening is that, assuming we have the correct level of cortisol in our bodies, what is happening is that our sympathetic nervous system, the SNS, is releasing cortisol into our bloodstream. In other words, we are getting ready to deal with the stressor by activating the fight, flight, freeze or fawn response, which comes from the amygdala located in the nape of our necks. This is what kept our ancestors alive when they would be chased by saber-toothed tigers, for example. That ancestral part of our brains, whilst useful in real-life emergency situations such as accidents or disasters or some other emergency, whilst useful in keeping us alive, it activates whenever there is anything going on to which we might react with a stress response. For example, your partners come home from work that day and they're feeling stressed out by something and they end up shouting at you. They probably regret it straight away. But at being shouted at, it's likely that you'll go into fight mode, ready to fight and shout back, or you'll get ready to flee the unpleasant situation, or you'll freeze hoping that it goes away. Irrespective of which reaction your nervous system has gone into, your body's SNS is dumping cortisol into your bloodstream. Once the stressing event passes and we stop reacting to the stress, our parasympathetic nervous system, the SN, the PNS, has the effect of calming us back down once that kicks in. By participating in practices such as meditation or yoga, we can program our parasympathetic nervous system, our PNS, to kick in and to kick in quickly, effectively allowing ourselves to be the rock standing sturdy as the waves crash about around us. By having a regular meditation or yoga practice, our PNS gains the ability to self-regulate our stress reaction, bringing us back to a state of calm more quickly than would otherwise be the case. So the next time someone says something to us or does something to us, or we feel that we're being excluded or discriminated against because of a minority trait that we may possess. Rather than reacting to the stress by going into fight, flight or freeze, we can have a way of calming ourselves down quickly and effectively gaining the ability to let the water run off our backs as would a duck. Cindy Dale, in her book, Energy Healing for Trauma, Stress and Chronic Illness, describes the PNS as the calming and de-escalating part of the nervous system. The PNS works with the SNS, the SNS being the part of the nervous system that is the excitatory and activating part. Dale states in her book, when prompted, the SNS immediately triggers the production of excitatory hormones, chiefly adrenaline, noradrenaline and cortisol. This initial hormonal blast-off is called the stress response and triggers the flight, freeze, fight and fawn reactions. I have previously talked about fight-or-flight responses in the context of suffering a trauma event. However, activation of the fight-or-flight response is not just restricted to trauma events. It can happen, for example, when we are being discriminated against, when we are being othered, we react and we stress. So by having practices that help us remain calm or that can help us get back to a state of feeling calm as quickly as possible, we become less reactive to the stressor. We build resilience and we become more able to deal with the exclusion or discrimination that we may be facing. In concluding today, I have touched on some quite sensitive topics, those being the harmful effects of social exclusion and their impact on mental health, which can include depression, a sense of a loss of purpose, anxiety, social phobia, shame, self-consciousness. And the impacts of each of these can be very damaging to wider society and to the overall economy. 
I discussed how, according to Dr. Gabor Mate, psychologically, on the individual level, the othering that racism entails is an antidote to self-doubt. In other words, if I don't feel good about myself, at least I can feel superior to somebody and gain a sense of power and status by claiming privilege over them. And it's not just racism that can be the discriminating othering. Then, I took you through things that we can do for ourselves to build our self-belief, self-esteem and self-confidence so that we no longer feel the need to have that sense of power or superiority over another person. I discussed some of the impacts of social exclusion and what can be done by all of us to bring it to social inclusion. I then went on to talk about some of the tools that we can use if we find ourselves on the receiving end of social exclusion or discrimination. If any of the topics that I've discussed today have affected you, please reach out to someone, whether that's a friend or a professional support service. Infinite Mindcare provides counselling services here in Cayman and can be reached on 926-0882. The Alex Panton Foundation offers support to people up to the age of 30 and their website is alexpantonfoundation.ky. The Wellness Centre here in, Cayman, in the Cayman Islands may be reached on 949-9355. Loud Silent Voices also provides mental health support and they are on 922-3847 or info at lsv.support. Tune in to my show Shuvra Deb with you every Thursday at 2pm right here on Bobo FM 89.1 in the Cayman Islands. And for those of you listening on the podcast, which is available on Spotify, Apple, Google and other platforms, for you guys, if you want to catch my show as it drops first on the radio, be sure to tune in. If you are listening on the podcast and you like what you hear, please follow, rate, review and share my show. I'd be so grateful if you would do that for me. And all of you can find me here on the radio live every Thursday at 2pm. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now. The Shuva Deb With You podcast is inspired and brought to you by Shuva Deb. Copyright Shuva Deb. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening to Shuva Deb With You. And please do tune in every Thursday at 2pm on Bobo FM 89.1 for more topics related to and relevant to mental health. If any of you would like to reach out to me directly about any of the issues I've discussed, please do email me at shuvradeb82 at gmail.com. That's spelt S-H-U-V-R-A-D-E-B, the numbers 82 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening.